Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, founder of Long in the Tooth Podcast. Most dentists fail to plan ahead for the sale of their practice, which costs them hundreds of thousands of dollars and burdens the ones they love with uncertainty about the future. So every Friday on Long in the Tooth, we share non-clinical insights from dental industry experts to help practice owners prepare for the sale of their practice today so they maximize profitability and peace of mind in the future. For all the hard work you put into building a practice, we believe that you, your family, and your staff deserve to transition after the sale into an even richer and more rewarding season of life. Hi, thank you for joining us again. Marie Chatterley here with Bill Rossi. We're discussing insurance participation and how to make a transition successful whether you're dropping a few insurance plans or just analyzing insurance and determining what makes most sense. The next topic we're going to discuss is how this relates to your practice if you're looking to transition your office. So whether it be selling your practice, bringing an associate on, buy-in, buy-out, partnership, mergers, and how this looks in conjunction with changing your insurance participation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, my pleasure. So if someone's looking to make a transition with their practice, whether it be uh, let's say they're looking to sell their practice in the next one to five years. Does that make a difference on how we strategically approach changing insurance participation? Yeah, I mean, if uh, I get calls like this, if, if you're going to be selling a practice within a year, I don't think I would go through a delta transition or major transition because uh, it, uh, it takes a while to get through, like we talked about in a previous uh, interview. You know, it takes eight months to really kind of get through the system and traction it. And, and when you're getting ready to stage a practice for sale, you probably have other things to, to worry about, right? Now, if you're talking three or five years out, yes, because I'm sure in your equations, Marie, that uh, one of the most important things when you're doing the EBITDA and all that stuff is profit. And if you uh, make the PPO play so your prop bottom line is better, um, that definitely helps sell the practice, I would think. So yes, when we're looking at practice valuations, the most recent year's income, I would say, is the most important, but you're looking yeah. at three to four years of income. So I like what you're saying that, you know, maybe if you're selling in one to two years, we're not going to see enough of a difference here to make a huge impact in what the numbers right. are going to be to equate to a higher practice value, for example. Right. Right. However, if you're talking about three, five, six, seven years then yes, I would argue that strategically starting that process now can have a substantial impact on your revenue, which does equal a huge impact on the practice well, value. Be, yeah, if you're, if you're increasing collections by you know 100,000 a year, yes. I'm sure that increases the practice value by at least that. But. Yes, yeah. So what if somebody's looking for a transition to bring on an associate and they're thinking of adding a doctor? Because I think this is where most of my clients are at. They're so busy, they don't know what to do. So they're either thinking they should drop insurance or add an associate or a combination. And yeah, I'm curious kind of what your your thoughts are, feedback on how to transition this insurance participation in conjunction with adding a provider. Yeah, that is, you know, um, that is a common juncture. I get a call, a doctor saying, I'm at a crossroads. I'm so busy, I could add an associate or I could drop an insurance. And um, they aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Yeah. So, um, but I would say it's, this really gets complicated. So for example, in some states, the, so the, the doctor might have the premier level of Delta and Delta is a big deal styles over the half the dental market. So I'm gonna use that example. And uh, that doctor 
uh, might have a 20 or 30% negotiated discount with Delta. So on a $1,400 crown, maybe they're getting a thousand bucks or $1,100. Their associate might come on board and they'd have to be with Delta PPO. That's in some states, not all states. A lot of doctors just assume Premier is dead. It isn't dead. And there's a lot of misinformation. But so if the associate comes on board, they'll be at the PPO level. And that makes it more complicated because uh, then do you have one doctor be premier and the other PPO? Uh, or do you drop Delta altogether? Or do you drop Delta altogether and not add an associate? The Usually what we find here, because when we do a transition, the practice remains busy. If it was busy enough before a transition to add an associate, it'll be busy enough after. They aren't mutually exclusive, but they have to take into account things. Um, and it is really a fairly complicated question. Yes, because I think um, I like what you're saying is that, you know, you have to analyze. I, I do want all the listeners to know that you really do need to check with how Delta works within your state. So I we're not going to make any. Um, it does vary. And, and there's a lot of missing people don't know they can drop. The, the number one thing, doctor, if you're with Delta Premier slash PPO, is you drop the PPO and just do the premier status. And for most doctors that have been practicing before 2017, that will be the case. And it's tremendously lucrative and it's not that hard of a transition. But a lot of doctors go, I heard that uh, there isn't Delta Premier anymore. And I go, well, there gradually may not be, but right now it's in most states. And so, yeah, and it does have to be done by state. Yeah. Yeah, I think you have to confirm, but like you're saying, you know, adding, they don't necessarily have to happen at the exact same time or happen separate because some practices, it might make sense for them to bring the associate on while they're still participating with a variety of insurance plans. And then they make the decision together with that associate, how they're going to strategically drop them, where it's very possible that they could start changing some insurance participation now while they're looking to bring an associate on. And like you said, maybe there's a circumstance where the two providers are in network with different plans. Different. Yeah, slightly different. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for example, let's say I'm bringing an associate who um, basically he's going to buy me out or she's going to buy me out one or two years. I would not counsel being dramatic about participation changes then because I would go, again, because of that shorter window, I would say I want the associate to meet as many of the patients as possible. Yeah. And then once he or she takes over the practice, they can make the PPO place if it's that short a window. I try to have as few variables as possible. But if the associate had to join at a crappy level of participation, I might go, uh, let's move on this sooner. Okay. Yeah. So it, it really depends on the It practice. really is. Yeah. It gets kind of complicated. But a doctor, don't assume it has to be one or the other. Okay. I like that. Okay. So what are some of the challenges that you're currently seeing buyers are facing when they're acquiring a practice? Because yeah, I would think is... my buyers want to make changes with insurance participation, whether it be adding or dropping. Um, but what are you finding to be those challenges, especially let's say they bought a practice this year. What can they do anything this year in changing insurance or? Well, this is, uh, uh, yeah. Um, usually at this juncture, I don't hear much from people because if you're a buyer buying a practice, you're focused on that stuff and you're not really thinking about the weeds of PPO plays. And generally, 
what I advise someone buying a practice with heavy PPO participation is that a, before they take possession of the practice, they do negotiate with the same PPOs the, uh, the senior doctor is in. So they match up because if you have the senior doctor departing right away while you're coming in and buying a practice, you're just buying it outright. Uh, you probably do not want to buy a practice and make a PPO change at the same time. You have some negotiating advantage if you're negotiating right before you buy the practice because the PPOs can't take it for granted. But generally, I say sign up for the same stuff the senior doctor had if he's going to be leaving or she's going to be leaving. Get to know your patients for at least a year or two, then start peeling off the PPOs. Okay. I don't, I don't advise trying to do it all at once unless it's a particularly nasty PPO. Um, I do find that, so the fee schedules, if they were negotiated by the selling doctor, there's no guarantee that the buying doctor is going to get the same fee schedule. So that's They might get a better one. They might get a better one. And uh, that's where I might defer to the negotiators like uh, Becky Baylock out of Phoenix and Kelsey Gore out of Utah and right in your town, unlock the PPOs. Um, those people might help you if you're buying a practice heavy in PPO participation and negotiating the best fee you can get on that. But again, you know what happens, uh, Ray, is when someone's buying a practice, they just, the big picture comes into play more than that. You just want the practice. You want it to, like a lot of times, the best time I could help someone is a consult, not a PPO consult. It's right when they first buy a practice, but it's like when you first buy a car, you don't want anyone else telling you how to drive it. You don't want anyone else to, it's your car, you want to do it. So, you know, when someone's buying a practice, but I, if they say, I'm going to buy a practice and just drop all the PPOs, even though I'm Mr. Exorcist, PPOX, I go, no, don't do that. You got to meet the patients. Change as little as possible. So give yourself time to build the trust rapport with the patients and staff. Yes. And, and get the staff, yes. Yeah, and so maybe then by year two, you can start the conversation to strategically transition with some of these plans after you've had a chance to really build that base of trust and rapport. Yes, and the stability, as you well know, you don't want it, but lots of times when you take over a practice, there's staff turnover. And, you know, if you add staff turnover to doctor turnover to confusion and then the PPO stuff, it's just not a clean, I want a nice clean table. Yes, yeah. So I think the the ideal, at least when I have buyers calling me looking for a practice to acquire, most are pretty excited about the idea of buying a fee-for-service practice, the one that's yeah. not contracted with most insurance, or maybe they just have one plan. They just have one big one like Delta or Cigna or something. something. Yeah. And so do you find that there are any things that anything that the buyers should be aware of when they're acquiring that type of a practice? Well, that could be, uh, they're exceedingly rare, you know, complete fee-for-service practices. Not in Colorado, they're not, but. Uh, well, I, I mean, in Minnesota, I might have 12% of my clients yeah. that are no insurance you know, across the country. But how, what would you say in Colorado? What are you seeing? Um, of my client base, it's probably, well, it's at least 20% or higher. Really? Yes. Well, well, of course, I wouldn't hear from those people because. Oh, that's they're already, correct. They're yeah, yeah, they're already out. Now we're, but if, if someone's looking at it, I would look at, for example, if it was a normal mix of procedures, it wouldn't worry me much. But sometimes there's a selection, like if someone's a complete fee-for-service practice, they might be a very high-end doctor, like they're doing high-end cosmetic or really big case stuff. And so if you were practice, buying a practice from Dawson or Spear or Dickerson or something, 
you might have a hard time filling those shoes because maybe you're not going in and doing 10 or $20,000 cases, which is why that practice is fee for service. But assuming, uh, assuming it's a normal procedure mix, uh, it's a great advantage because you know what you do, you get paid for. But often, I think you would agree that some of those practices that are completely insurance fee, uh, free, free, free are doing so because of a very strong personality and continuing ed and skills of the doctor. I, I think historically that has been the case. I would have to say in the last five years of the practices that I've transitioned or sold, I just have been surprised the larger percentage of providers that I would just say are kind of uh, an average general dental practice. That, or, really? That are, well, yes. yeah. And I, would, I would love to see that spread. I'm sorry. I mean, originally we had, you know, years ago I had some buyer hesitation that maybe this would be challenging to acquire fee-for-service practice and maintain wow. potentially patients would go somewhere else. But, you know, in, in transitions, I haven't seen there be that type of attrition here. I really have seen that our independent practitioners that are successful and that are fee-for-service, that the buyers have been able to maintain that after they've acquired the practice. Well, yeah, it would be a terrific advantage. And I've seen too, unless there's extreme cultural differences between the buyer and the seller, the retention, and you've seen it, or I've seen it over and over again as sort of an outlooker looking in. I don't sell practices myself. Uh, the retention of patients is remarkably good. And if you could buy a practice where you actually get paid for what you do, I'd be all in if it wasn't an eccentric procedure mix. That yeah, I'm which I, I don't think that's as good. You don't have that problem as much, yeah. Okay. So is there um, that you can share with our viewers that we haven't discussed in these last three segments that you think would be important for them to consider when, you know, making this decision to transition from insurance participation? Well, the number one thing I'd say, just, you know, be conscious. If you can, try to get a real accounting for what you're writing off. Um, have your, you know, charge out your full fees or figure out how to reconstruct them. Like if you have open dental, you can charge out the insurance company fees, but still reconstruct what your write-offs are. You got to make sure you're getting a reading on what you're writing off. Okay. If you're not looking, unless you're already fee-for-service, which again, in my world, is fairly, well, it's not rare, but it's not usual. Um, unless you're there, if you're not looking at the insurance, it's like not ever even looking at your P&L or anything, because it's probably one of your biggest expenses. It might be in more than wages. And to not look at it and assume that you just have to take the write-offs is a dangerous and expensive assumption. So get a handle on is basically what I'm saying. And then the thing we talked about two, uh, two times ago, uh, doctor, you really do have more power than you think. Almost every doctor I've ever talked to goes, well, in my neighborhood, the insurance is really important. And if I leave MetLife or Cigna, I'm gonna lose all those patients. And I have to say, doctor, you're, the trust the patients have in you and your retention is probably much better than you think it is. And, and I've seen it over and over again. And again, I, I'm careful not to overpromise, but yeah. I can tell the insurance participation, like I said, very is important, but it's not the most important thing. Or uh, There's a lot of other things that are even more important. Yes, I like that feedback. One, I like that if you're not currently tracking your insurance write-offs, please start doing so. There is uh, any yeah. pretty much all insurance or all practice management software yeah. programs have a way for you to look at what your UCR fees are, so what your office fee schedule is, versus what is being billed to insurance. And right. 
a lot of offices I noticed don't track the incoming collections based on insurance carrier, which is an easy thing you could change right now too. So yeah. incoming from MetLife, Cigna, United Healthcare, United Concordia, you can set that up so that your income coming in matches to the insurance plan so that that's easier to track. But I like your second advice that have some confidence. Like you, are, there's a reason why these patients come to see you. There's a reason why they're coming to your practice. Yes. And it's not just because of insurance. You have you, you have your team members. There's a lot of things that patients are looking for when they're looking for good treatment. And I would say that's why I do feel a lot of my independent practitioners here in my marketplace are very successful and do very well and are looking at these issues we're talking about today very seriously because they're so busy. They either need to bring an associate on, they need to change insurance, they need to do something because they cannot manage the capacity of what is coming into their practices. I would say a lot of my clients, the hygiene schedule is booked out, you know, four or five months and the doctor's schedule is booked out three months. Like they're- Yeah, that's not even funny. Yeah. Yes. And so being able to have the courage to realize that people, they like you, they love you, they want to come see you, they want um, to seek treatment from you. And as long as we're strategic in how we do this, so we analyze the practice, like you're saying, and then bringing the staff so that they're involved in the process, they understand why we're doing this. And then I love your view of positive reinforcement of how to dialogue with patients in a way that feels very positive and that the staff members can feel comfortable in relaying the information. Um, like you're saying, not as a, what was me, or this is so awful, but here's, you know, the wonder. Positive. And, and, and I'm no friend of Delta, and I, I actually don't want Delta to know I exist, but even with Delta, when you go through transition, we don't ever diss an insurance company, just like you don't diss any of your competitors or colleagues. We keep it very positive. And it just helps everything go better. Yes, I like that. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. Thank you for helping us understand better this process of transitioning with insurance participation. This is a lot of great information I feel our listeners were hoping to hear. And we'll put a link here on the podcast so that individuals can get in contact with you if they have additional questions they want to discuss one-on-one. -on -one. All right. Thank you very much, Maria. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you.